Hello guys, so I've broken the series opener down into two parts and if you're now listening to the second part to save me recapping, then if you haven't already heard part one of the series opener, then I advise that you stop here right now and go and listen to that part first because this one won't make too much sense if you don't. And who starts something at part two anyway, I ask you guys. Once again, the account within the series opener does contain descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use discretion as always, folks. There is also contained within this part of the account the use of a racial slur and references to racial and homophobic views. Now, these are not meant to offend in any way and categorically are not the views of the enthusiast. I shouldn't have to really express that, but I will do. They're not omitted because as ever, we go for all or nothing here. So just bearing that in mind guys, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for part 2 of the Series 5 opener, The Body on Corstaphine Hill. The trial of Seamus, or James Dunleavy, began at Edinburgh's High Court on the 8th of January 2014, where he entered a plea of not guilty to the murder of his mother, 66-year-old Philomena Dunleavy between the 30th of April and the 7th of May of the previous year. The 40-year-old also denied the charge of attempting to pervert the course of justice by attempting to cover up the alleged murder and to destroy evidence. Advocate Deputy Alex Prentice QC, prosecuting, told the court that Mrs Dunleavy, a small, slightly built and shy mother of five from Marino in North Dublin, had left a home in early April of the previous year and by the 24th of April had arrived in Edinburgh to visit her eldest son James, Seamus, whatever she called him, at his flat in Balgreen Road, just a few minutes walk away from where her remains were found on Corstaphine Hill, a local nature reserve, just over two months later. The court heard that Mrs Dunleavy, who suffered from a number of medical problems and had been badly affected by a stroke she'd had previously, had developed a habit of wandering off for days or sometimes weeks on end without telling anyone where she was going. But by early July, with no sign of her or any word from her, her family in Dublin were beginning to wonder where she was. Dunleavy had phoned his father on May the 3rd to say that his mother was on her way home to Dublin, but his mother had, apparently, never arrived back there. She'd never arrived because Mr Prentice outlined to the court that Dunleavy had actually already killed his mother in a fit of rage in his Balgreen Road flat. The murder charge alleged that it was there that he inflicted blunt force trauma by means unknown, compressed his mother's throat and cut off her head, arms and legs with a blade and something like a saw before further alleging that Dunleavy had then put his mother's torso, limbs and head into a suitcase and took the dismembered body to Corstaphine Hill Nature Reserve where he buried her. The second charge accused Dunleavy of pretending his mother had been unwell and had returned to Ireland without his knowledge a ruse which he'd kept up by telephoning his father to inform him that his mother had left and would be back in the country that evening. Following burying his mother's body, Dunleavy had then disposed of both his mother's mobile phone and the one he was using himself before cleaning his flat thoroughly, vacuuming and scrubbing it top to bottom to remove bloodstains and disposing by burning of a bed and mattress from the spare room. 
The court then heard a chronological account of the entire investigation, beginning with the discovery of Phyllis's body. No witnesses had come forward who reported seeing her final journey in a suitcase, nor any to the shallow grave being dug on Corstaphine Hill. She hadn't been reported missing by her own family. Again, I know I keep coming back to that, I know I did last episode, but I think that I'm so close to my own mum, what an absolute shame that a family dynamic is that your mum can be out of the loop where you don't see her or don't even get a call or a text for two months and you don't think things are wrong. That's bloody mind-boggling and shameful, that is. And Phyllis's body had remained in a lonely grave on Corstaphine Hill until skiing instructor Aaron McLean Foreman had stopped to sunbathe at mid-bike ride in a clearing there on a warm afternoon in the previous June. Recounting his find to the court, Aaron said, I didn't mind the detour and decided to have a break in the sunshine and relax and enjoy the fine weather. Finding a clear spot, it was there that he made the horrific discovery. He went on, Almost immediately, the first thing I noticed was very white teeth, teeth and a skull. I've seen a fair share of sheep skulls and deer skulls while walking in the hills, and I wanted to believe that was what I was seeing, but it was fairly clear that it was not what I was looking at. It appeared to me, after coming to terms with what I was looking at, that the soil had been altered. He then took a photo of the scene and his findings so he could lead police back to the spot before leaving, telling the court, I believe I went into a state of something like shock. Police had arrived following his report and after confirming the remains were indeed human, preservation and archaeological excavation of the scene began. The jury were then shown time-lapse images taken of the forensic work used to excavate the remains and forensic archaeologist Dr Jennifer Miller told the court that the grave, which was no deeper than 46 centimetres, just 1 foot 6 inches, would have been a difficult one to dig, for underneath the top layer of sandy soil, the ground was so hard it could break a spade. She added, everything was facing east, in an archaeological context, this would suggest a Christian burial, it's facing the rising sun. Pathologist Ian Wilkinson then told the court that the official conclusion was that the cause of death was unascertained due to Mrs Dunleavy's dismembered body lying for so long in the shallow grave. The court heard that Mrs Dunleavy had suffered from coronary heart disease in her life and that there were traces of drugs found in her body, including morphine. But there was also evidence of blunt force trauma to her head as although the skull was intact, it was discoloured in parts. Tiny bones in her neck had suffered extensive damage and she'd also suffered a number of broken ribs and a fractured shin. Telltale marks showed that a saw had been used on Mrs Dunleavy's thighs, arms and head, probably while she was lying on her back with cuts that were made from front to back and left to right. Dr Wilkinson suggested that dismemberment had occurred most likely when the victim had been already dead. You'd kind of really want to hope that it was, wouldn't you? But he did add, Because of the condition in which the body was found, a lot of our findings have to have caveats. Providing a conclusive cause of death was difficult in this case. 
The details of Operation Sandpiper, as we've already heard in the previous episode, were then relayed to the court, beginning with how the initial description of the unknown victim, her dental work and distinctive jewellery were appealed. Testimony was then heard from Professor Wilkinson concerning the craniofacial reconstructive techniques her team had used and how this line of inquiry had proved accurate and rapidly successful, leading to Phyllis's identification. Testimony from Police Officers Detective Sergeant Stuart Wilson and Detective Constable Brian Manchester, who told of the separate interviews with Dunleavy before and after his arrest the account that he'd given in the former, and his demeanour and no-comment responses in the latter, and from senior crime officers who relayed testimony of the search and examination procedures carried out at Dunleavy's Balgreen Road flat and the physical and forensic evidence that had been obtained as a result of this. Carol Ross and PC Robertson also gave evidence to the court concerning their separate encounters with Phyllis a few days after she'd arrived in Edinburgh, and Dunleavy's father, James Sr., confirmed to the court that he had indeed received a phone call from his son in early May of the previous year, saying, James rang me to say she was on her way home, that she would be there that night, but she never returned. He added, it was no surprise, really. She'd never returned, the court heard, because she couldn't possibly have. Dunleavy had already killed her in a fit of rage, dismembered her body and buried it a mile from his home on Corstaphine Hill. And he'd almost begun to hint to people what he'd done. Testimony was then given to the court by Mohammed Razak, a shopkeeper who ran the convenience store located beneath Dunleavy's flat and who told of conversations he'd had with Dunleavy that took place before Philomena was found dead. Mr. Razak described himself as a former close friend of Dunleavy's, one who'd welcomed him to the area when he'd arrived and had helped him to convert to the Islamic faith. He even had a set of keys to Dunleavy's flat and used a bedroom in here to pray on occasions that he was unable to get to the local mosque. Mr. Razak had witnessed a heated conversation one evening between Dunleavy and his mother during a visit in April 2013 where Dunleavy had been angry and agitated because his mother had separated from his father and moved in with another man. Dunleavy had furiously berated his mother, claiming that she'd been brainwashed by a group of women he called the witches. Although when questioned about this statement by defence QC Gordon Jackson, Mr. Razak agreed that although it had been a lively discussion, as he quoted, there'd been no audible threat of violence. However, when he tried to visit Dunleavy the following evening with the purpose of inviting him to a Muslim wedding that was being held in Dundee, Dunleavy would not let him into the flat. He told the court, I put the key into the door of the house. I'd opened the door barely a foot and James stood in the house and blocked it with his own foot. He said, My mum is not well. She is sleeping. You cannot come in tonight. He'd never done that before and I was taken aback, slightly upset. I thought maybe I'd done something the previous night which had upset him and our friendship was at risk. He added that Dunleavy looked as though he'd not slept, claiming, It seemed odd to me, his appearance is normally smart, but he looked very dishevelled. The following day, Mr. Razak was told by Dunleavy that Phyllis had returned to Dublin early that morning without even saying goodbye to her son. 
He also noticed that Dunleavy, who'd quit smoking when converting to Islam, now in an agitated state bought cigarettes from him, apparently having begun smoking again. Then later that same evening, Dunleavy came into the shop once again and stayed talking with him, this time until closing time. Mr. Razak told the court that the first thing Dunleavy had said to him that evening was, I might be evil, I might be hearing voices in my head. He continued, My reply was, that is the devil in your head talking to you. Keep the Quran beside yourself to protect yourself. And he said, that does not work. He then told Mr. Razak, Soon your own faith will be tested although he would not explain this statement any further. Mr. Razak told the court that he'd not seen Dunleavy again until both were at the mosque some days before his arrest, when Dunleavy had refused to shake his hand and had demanded that Mr. Razak give him his keys back. Had these voices in his head led Dunleavy to cause unspeakable harm to his mother? A former workmate of Dunleavy's from the Edinburgh Tram Project, Matthew Hagen, also told the High Court of a similar strange conversation he'd had with James Dunleavy in the weeks following his mother's supposed return to Dublin. He'd spoken to police following Dunleavy's arrest and told them that Dunleavy's words to him one working day were I have done something bad brother, I'm going away. Repeating his account, Mr Hagen told the court I asked him where he was going and he said, I don't know, it could be years, weeks, months. He said he'd done something bad, something he wasn't proud of, something he was ashamed of, but he wouldn't reveal to me what it was. However, when cross-examined by Mr Jackson, Mr Hagen agreed that Dunleavy was someone who would, I quote, talk a lot of nonsense, and for him to say things which did not make sense was not unusual. Now based on the evidence and testimony the court had heard to that point, admitting to doing something bad, considering himself evil and hearing voices in his head doesn't seem to be nonsense really though does it? Three psychiatrists who had examined Dunleavy whilst he was on remand then told the trial that although it was clear Dunleavy had serious psychological problems, they differed in opinion as to what exactly his diagnosis should be, an impasse complicated by Dunleavy's refusal to discuss his alleged crime. Psychiatrist Dr John Crichton told the court that his diagnosis was one of paranoid personality disorder, that Dunleavy might interpret benign events as something directed solely towards him, and he was someone who could bear a grudge. It was his opinion, however, that although Dunleavy had odd beliefs, he could be reasoned with and was not completely in the grip of delusions and obsessions. I did not think him incapable of making decisions, the psychiatrist told the court. Dr Kuram Khan, the state hospital doctor who was treating Dunleavy in car stairs at the time of his trial, was more of the opinion that Dunleavy could be suffering from paranoid schizophrenia but as there were issues he was still trying to tease out of him, his assessment of Dunleavy was incomplete. It is a complicated case, he told the trial. And why have two professionals disagree when you can have three? Another psychiatrist, Dr Isabel Campbell, had also examined Dunleavy before his trial, albeit admittedly only on one occasion. 
The notes from her session with Dunleavy remarked that he had displayed severe difficulty in controlling his temper and had also grinned when she'd asked him about the death of his sister, which had just occurred. Her report claimed, He has displayed poor anger management and problem solving, but this would not necessarily be indicative of mental illness. James Dunleavy himself gave evidence for just over an hour, where he insisted throughout that he loved his mother, that they were close, and that he categorically did not murder her. He repeated his tale of how his mother had arrived unannounced at his flat the previous spring, and had left again suddenly without warning, behaviour that he claimed was normal for 66-year-old Phyllis. That was my mother's M.O., he told the court. He agreed that he was the last person to see her alive, but he denied killing her, believing instead that she would just turn up again sometime later, as this going walkabout, as he put it, was something that the Dunleavy family were used to. I did nothing to my mother, he said. I thought she would miraculously appear again. His mother, who he again repeated what he'd said in an earlier police interview as being hard work and a difficult person, was often known to just wander off, sometimes taking with her minimal belongings, hence the reason for her clothing and identity card being found upon a search of his flat, because he'd simply figured she just left them behind, reinforcing his view of expecting her back in a few days' time. This set a pattern throughout Dunleavy's evidence. He had an answer for everything. Dunleavy either denied everything that was put to him, came up with an alternate explanation for them, or claimed that witnesses were simply mistaken or deliberately not telling the truth. For example, Dunleavy denied arguing with his mother shortly before she was believed to have died, saying that Mr. Razak, who described what he'd witnessed between the two of them as a heated row, was instead describing a misinterpretation of a wordy discussion between them. We were just having a bit of banter, that's all, he insisted. He also insisted that former workmate Matthew Hagen, who told the trial that Dunleavy told him he'd done a bad thing, had misheard him because of the noise of the machinery that they were using. Or, when he was questioned about the missing bed and mattress from his spare room, Dunleavy admitted to the court he'd thrown out the bed because an incontinent acquaintance who'd stayed with him had soiled the mattress, but he denied setting fire to it. He was insistent in his story throughout, expressing his love for his mother and claimed he'd not seen or heard any of the publicity which followed the finding of her body on Corstaphine Hill because he didn't read newspapers or watch television. There was plenty of stuff he couldn't satisfactorily answer though, like why, if he'd expected her back, had he telephoned his father to say she was on her way back to Dublin, or the reasons for the bizarre conversations he'd had with Mr. Razak. When it was put to him that three examining psychological professionals who'd had sessions with him during his remand period at the state hospital considered that he was suffering from a form of serious mental disorder, Dunleavy replied, I think the gravity of the crime I am accused of may have coloured their perception, but I suppose they're entitled to their opinion. Dunleavy then concluded his evidence by answering an emphatic no and no when asked by Mr. Jackson, did you do anything that would have caused the death of your mother? And were you responsible for what happened to her before she got buried? 
Mr Prentice then began his closing speech to the jury, saying that James Dunleavy had indeed, in the words of Matthew Hagen, done something bad. He suggested some of the jury might have hoped at the beginning of the trial that it would be interesting, adding, but as is often the case in our courts, there's a great deal of tragedy and misery unfolding which you have to hear. He told the jury that the case against Dunleavy was a circumstantial one in which pieces of evidence came together like strands in a cable. This is a classic case of that type, said the prosecutor. There'll be some un unanswered questions in this case, some unresolved issues and loose ends. Mr Prentice explained that one of these loose ends in the case concerned the account given by shopkeeper Mohammed Razak of the row between Mr Dunleavy and his mother. While he was not suggesting Dunleavy did not love his mother, there was an issue between them that might be related to a new man in Miss Dunleavy's life. There is something going on between son and mother and it is linked in some way to this relationship. That is all I can say, he said. He then outlined once again his opening address to the jury, breaking down the wording of the charges Dunleavy was facing. Mr Prentice said her killer had had to take risks, but had buried Miss Dunleavy without being seen. He agreed that it was possible that Miss Dunleavy had been walking in the woods on Corstaphine Hill when she was attacked and killed. But if so, why, he asked, would a killer cut off her head and legs? Dismemberment has an advantage for someone who's killed a person. It makes a body more transportable, he replied. That someone was James Dunleavy. He'd killed and dismembered his own mother and then worked to cover up evidence of his crime by suggesting she'd simply walked off for a few days. Referring to the clothing, the 870 euros and her identity card that were found in her son's home, Mr Prentice said, do you not think it's extraordinary that all these things were left? When it came to the turn of Mr Jackson to sum up for the defence, he argued that there were no witnesses that had seen Dunleavy moving a suitcase to Corstaphine Woods. None of the physical evidence found in the flat or the surrounding area could tie him to the murder of his mother and recalled the evidence from police officers and forensic scientists about their forensic examination of Dunleavy's Balgreen Road flat. They'd examined every surface, had stripped carpets, even taken up floorboards, and used the blood-revealing chemical luminol under special lighting throughout. Aside from the two minute spots of blood, which he put to the jurors hardly amounted to evidence that Dunleavy had cut up his mother's body, nothing was found. This was despite, he said, CSI in spades. You could not imagine a more intense, detailed examination for something that might have been cleared up. What did they find? Nothing. He went on to say that his client had a very simple response to the Crown case. I never. Nothing could be simpler than that. He says, I didn't do any of it. I didn't kill her. I didn't harm her. I didn't do anything to her body and I did not bury her. Mr Jackson argued that even if the Crown could prove beyond reasonable doubt that Dunleavy had buried his mother's remains, they could not prove that he'd killed her. There was no direct evidence that he'd killed his mother, and no actual cause of death was determined. He also said that, based on testimony by Drs Kahn, Crichton and Campbell, if the jury went against him, 
Dunleavy's mental state was considered such that the verdict should be guilty of the reduced charge of culpable homicide, not murder. On Thursday, January 16th, 2014, following an eight-day trial, a jury of eight women and seven men deliberated for less than five hours before convicting James Dunleavy on a majority verdict of the reduced charge of culpable homicide, as well as the attempted cover-up of his mother's murder. As his 68-year-old father and younger brother Austin watched, Dunleavy stared straight ahead and showed no emotion as the verdict was read out, nor did he utter a word as Judge Lord Jones delayed sentencing and ordered him to remain in the state hospital, Carstairs, while psychiatrists continued to assess his mental condition in the aim of obtaining a diagnosis. Dunleavy was ordered to appear again before the court in April 2014 in order for the judge to decide following psychiatric reports the most suitable venue for Dunleavy, hospital or prison. Lord Jones told him, you are required to be detained under conditions of such security as can be provided in the state hospital. As he was led to the cells before being taken back to Carstairs, Dunleavy's family gave him a thumbs-up gesture and offered some words of encouragement to him, despite the truly awful and personal circumstances of his crime. His family, who for reasons unknown reportedly had not cooperated with police at all following the discovery of Phyllis's body, opted not to make a press statement at the time, but others did speak to the media. Detective Chief Inspector Keith Hardy, who'd led Operation Sandpiper, said, James Dunleavy was involved in causing his mother's death and then failed to report the matter to police instead opting to conceal her body within a wooded area in Corstaphine Hill. Following the discovery of Phyllis Dunleavy's body, Police Scotland launched a major investigation and appeal for information, which was assisted by a number of specialist agencies. Thanks to this support, a facial reconstruction was created and released to the public, and soon after, we had a confirmed identity and a subsequent arrest. Others who knew Dunleavy gave their own thoughts and opinions following his conviction and offered the theory that Dunleavy, as a recent convert to Islam, had perhaps misinterpreted the teachings of the Quran and had killed his mother in an honour killing. Yeah, I said that, an honour killing. Muhammad Razak, who as we've said had befriended Dunleavy and helped him convert to Islam, plus who'd given evidence at the trial, told the Scottish Daily Record newspaper that he believed Dunleavy was enraged at his mother, who he felt had betrayed the family by leaving his father and moving in with another man, even though this had happened many years before. He said, It's a tragic event. I feel gutted. I wish it had never happened, and I feel sorry for James for carrying out such a heinous crime. I think it was an honour killing. He was trying to protect his family's honour. Another source who knew Dunleavy but didn't wish to be named added, James was pretty obsessed when it came to religion. He was brought up a Catholic but just decided one day that he would convert to Islam. He was very, very serious about it and cared a lot about it. His faith was very important to him and he prayed five times a day. I can't say if he killed his mum because he converted 
but he believed very strongly in the morals of the Quran and was furious about his mum leaving his dad for someone else. He saw it as adultery and they had a massive argument about it. Had this been reason enough for Dunleavy to kill? Not according to what he said when he was eventually to open up to doctors. On the 4th of April 2014, at a High Court hearing, Judge Lord Jones continued his interim order for Dunleavy to be psychiatrically assessed by medical staff at Carstairs. The court heard from his defence counsel, Gordon Jackson QC, who told them that Dunleavy had an expressed wish to be transferred to the prison system rather than stay in the state hospital, wanting the matter dealt with, he claimed. But on the basis of how poorly Dunleavy was responding to psychiatric assessments, doctors had said this was so far an unrealistic prospect, so the interim order continued yet again. He was back in the High Court on the 19th of June 2014, where once again the court heard that rather than an indefinite stay in the state hospital, Dunleavy wanted a prison sentence, if not just because he believed he was fine to be in prison and not hospital, than that he complained he couldn't find a worthy chess opponent in Carstairs. It boggles the bloody mind, doesn't it, really? Mr Jackson claimed that medical reports had been prepared for the hearing, but requested yet another adjournment, as he felt duty-bound to have an independent body look at the reports and recommendations before presenting them to the court. This was agreed, and Dunleavy was once again returned to the state hospital pending a further hearing. It actually took a further six months for Dunleavy to once again appear before the court, but the next time he did, a sentence was this time passed upon him. Once the reports of medical professionals who'd examined Dunleavy at Carstairs had been verified, at a hearing at Edinburgh's High Court on the 14th of January 2015, the conclusion that was reached was that a secure hospital wasn't necessarily the best place for Dunleavy to be. Even after Dunleavy had admitted to doctors killing his mother and cutting her open because he thought she wasn't human. Instead, he thought she was a lizard impersonating a human, like the visitors in the TV series V many years ago. And he was so convinced of this, said Dr. Khan to the court, he firmly believed his mother was a reptile and the only way to check was to look inside her body. Dr. Khan told the court that it was his professional opinion that Dunleavy had paranoid schizophrenia and reporting on his time at the state hospital, Dr. Khan said that although Dunleavy had been involved in instances of antisocial behaviour there, claiming to have periodic suicidal thoughts and on one occasion attacking a fellow patient he believed was mocking him and wished to cause him harm. He had since begun to respond well to medication and actively engage in a treatment programme. He believed that with medication under supervision, Dunleavy's condition could be managed within a prison facility. But Dr Isabel Campbell, who'd also testified at Dunleavy's trial and had once again examined him, told the court that Dunleavy had discussed his interest in spiritual beliefs and his attraction to Islam at great length to her, but with a habit of making up words or using conventional words in a strange way. Dunleavy had told her on several occasions that he was in Carstairs to be calibrated, as he's put it, and in her opinion, 
was an untreatable psychopath. She went on, he has scored exceptionally high in tests to establish psychopathy, having a psychopathy scale of over 30. It is extremely rare for patients in Carstairs or the general prison population to have a score that high. It is my professional opinion that psychopathy is not amenable to treatment. So it was to be off back to the neck for Dunleavy, as if out of two diagnoses, one claims that his condition is untreatable, then there's little to be gained from keeping him in a secure hospital, and the other says that his condition could be managed in a prison facility with supervised medication, then where else are you going to put him? Alton Towers? Dunleavy himself had been desperate to go to a prison facility since his conviction, and so was about to get his wish. Passing sentence upon him, Lord Jones told Dunleavy, I will impose an extended sentence of 18 years. The custodial element will be 9 years. Yes, 9 years. This was to be followed by another 9 years close supervision from authorities following his release from custody. Now I understand that a charge of culpable homicide like its almost English counterpart manslaughter carries less of a sentence than murder, but nine years incarceration for chopping your mum up claiming you did because you thought she was really a lizard, it doesn't seem right that really does it at all. But that's the sentence Dunleavy received and was taken straight from the High Court to Her Majesty's Prison Shots in North Lanarkshire to begin it. Less than 18 months after being sent here, in June 2016, Dunleavy was involved in a violent altercation with a fellow convict, Martin Stewart, that ended up with part of Stewart's ear being bitten off as fellow inmates surrounded them and watched. In a frenzy, Dunleavy had to be pulled off Stewart himself at the end of a five-year prison sentence for culpable homicide by prison officers who'd raced to stop them. At a two-day hearing at Hamilton Sheriff's Court in January 2017, with Dunleavy facing charges of wounding and causing severe injury and disfigurement, prison officer William Balcaras told the court, I was at the desk and noticed prisoners rolling around on the floor and it looked serious. They were shouting and raised voices. There were two of them involved, James Dunleavy and Martin Stewart. I shouted fight to alert other staff because they were grappling, each pulling each other and rolling about. Now, I had an image of Harry Hill sat behind his desk shouting fight then and I nearly almost said it like him also. But I digress. It was a serious altercation this was too. As I said, Stuart had part of his ear bitten off. So it's certainly not handbags at dawn, that is it? However, Dunleavy claimed he'd acted in special defence after Stuart had attacked him first. Stuart had refused to cooperate with prosecutors and did not appear in court to testify against his alleged attacker, so Dunleavy was cleared after the jury returned a not-proven verdict. He was transferred to Her Majesty's Prison Edinburgh in the aftermath of this incident, however and was released to an Edinburgh halfway house early last year in 2019, having served two-thirds of his custodial sentence. Released back into the community, Dunleavy was being monitored by authorities in a Lanarkshire halfway house, yet by November 2019, Dunleavy had been readmitted to the state hospital 
considered to be so dangerous that there were serious concerns that he would offend again. An unnamed source told the Scottish Daily Record, He was starting to act very weirdly, very hostile, very aggressive, and it was worrying some of the staff. He was considered untreatable at the state hospital, so to put this guy back on the streets was a crazy decision. The people who make those decisions are playing Russian roulette with the public. He's been at the hostel for some time and has been allowed to freely mingle with the public who have no idea who he is or what he's done. He was readmitted to the hospital about a month ago as an emergency admission. The police took him back. He'd been showing signs of hostility and threatening violence and the staff at the hostel decided they couldn't take any chances with their own safety, the other residents and the public. James Dunleavy remains in Carstairs to this day. I'd like to say that he's likely to for a long time, not just for his own safety and for the safety of the general public as well. You can't have people chopping other people up because they think they're reptiles. But you just don't know if he will, do you? And the ripples of his monstrous crime were felt far and wide even after his conviction also. His elder sister Kim was so shattered by trying to come to terms with the death of her mother that her sister, and then hearing her brother's unthinkable actions at his trial, that unable to cope, she developed an addiction to sleeping tablets that she turned to crime to obtain. She began stealing prescription pads from doctors' surgeries and hospitals, then forging prescriptions herself in an attempt to obtain prescription sleeping tablets. On May the 14th, 2016, she'd attempted this at Conway's Pharmacy in the Whitehall area of Dublin with a prescription that had been taken from the Mater Hospital. Nine days later, attempting to put another prescription pad into her bag from a nurse's station at the outpatients department in the Mater, although she'd left without taking it. And then on November the 11th, she'd tried to use a prescription stolen from Dublin's Beaumont Hospital to obtain tablets at Daly's Pharmacy on Dublin's New Cabra Road. Just some of the examples these. She was arrested and faced charges several times over actions such as these until by November 2018, Kim Dunleavy had amassed some 38 previous convictions for offences including burglary, theft and possession of forged prescriptions. Often when she was arrested attempting to use a forged prescription, Garda found that she had several more on a person and a check of pharmacy records would often reveal she had previously used falsified prescriptions to successfully obtain medication. Finally, that month, at Blanchardstown District Court in Dublin, she was jailed for six months, albeit suspended for two years, after pleading guilty to several theft charges related to her drug dependency. Kim Dunleavy admitted multiple counts of burglary, handling stolen property, and possession of false prescriptions, and even also admitted shoplifting groceries from two supermarkets. The court heard that Kim had been previously employed as a medical secretary at a clinic, but had begun to slide following the death of her mother and of her sister shortly after her mother's body was discovered. As her own brother was charged with her mother's murder, the events leading towards and the 2014 trial was a gruelling ordeal for Dunleavy and her family, and she began using sleeping tablets as a coping mechanism.
Following a brother's conviction, a combination of the events that had occurred and this increasing use of medication changed her personality. Miss Dunleavy was not in a position to deal with what was happening to her family at the time and never quite came to terms with it, her counsel claimed. It had led to her leaving her job and being prescribed sleeping pills by a GP to help cope day to day, but the doctor soon realised there was an increasing dependency and refused her the medication she'd become dependent upon. The tablets were a psychological comfort blanket. She felt she couldn't deal with daily life without this medication, her counsel said. Dunleavy now realised that the medication had changed her personality and admitted it had made her do things she wouldn't ordinarily have done, leading to the offences she'd admitted to because her sole focus had been to get more medication by any means necessary to get her through the day. She told the court she was now in counselling and had reduced her dependency to one tablet per day. Presiding Judge McHugh, passing sentence, told Dunleavy that while she had protracted and serious difficulties, he was satisfied that she knew the nature and quality of her actions and knew them to be wrong. Although she'd previously received a suspended sentence for such offences, Judge McHugh imposed a six-month prison sentence, but showing leniency, again suspended this for two years. Now you'd have to hope that since this, Kim Dunleavy has managed to begin to come to terms with the tragedy she's already experienced in her life, because that is a few, isn't it? Bloody hell. And has gone some way to moving on and dealing with her losses. I can imagine that coming to terms with the actions of someone who's supposed to be one of the closest people to you, causing so much horror, loss and heartache is a real struggle. Imagining your own sibling being so evil and cold-blooded to do that to your own mum. Because that's what I believe strongly. This is pure evil we're talking about here with James Dunleavy. One person who undoubtedly, unhesitatingly would agree with this is Dunleavy's former partner, Tracy Deluxe, the mother of his daughter, because she endured years of torment from him. In fact, right up until a short time before his arrest for the murder of his mother. After Dunleavy was safely secured away, Tracy gave an interview to the press concerning the past violence and abuse she'd endured at his hands and I've decided to recount it here in full in Tracy's own words. Now, the following does contain disturbing and offensive content including the use of racist and homophobic ideology and a racial slur and I'd hope that, as I said earlier, I wouldn't need to explain this but such vile ignorance is categorically in no way the view of the enthusiast nor is it included to offend guys as ever it's kept in here to portray exactly the type of person that we're talking about tracy met james dunleavy who she described as being charming after he moved to coventry in search of laboring work in the early 1990s the pair got to know each other as they lived in adjoining houses in the city and would soon cross paths as they drank in the same pub where they quickly fell for each other and became a couple. Tracy recalled, I was attracted by his persistence. He wouldn't give up and was always asking me out. He was always buying me chocolates and flowers and I quite liked that because I'd never experienced it before. He was bright, intelligent, articulate and really cheerful. I thought he was funny chatty and had lots of stories to tell 
It wasn't like he wined and dined me. He took me to the pub where all the Irish drank. We'd all sit together, both groups of friends. He was just a really nice person and I fell for him. I loved his bright red hair and his strong accent. The pair began seeing each other and within months quietly spoken Tracy, who worked as a carer at the time, fell pregnant. But by the time she had, she'd already seen signs of Dunleavy's volatile nature as he'd begun to become possessive towards her very early on in their relationship. Tracy went on. As soon as we went out, he started getting really possessive. One time we were walking in Coventry. It was a summer's day and I had a pair of shorts and a t-shirt on. Somebody came past on a bike and Wolf whistled at me. Without any warning, James started chasing after him down the road. I couldn't believe it. He was calling him all the names under the sun. I thought, that's a bit odd. That's when I first realised something was not quite right. He started telling me what I could and couldn't wear. He was just overly possessive. Dunleavy had by that time also begun acting aggressively and making racist comments in her company about her friends and colleagues. Tracy added, He was a racist and Nazi. He said if Hitler had won the war, we wouldn't have any blacks in the country. By now terrified of Dunleavy, and midway through her pregnancy also, Tracy decided to flee Coventry and move to a bedsit. She went on, I told a friend I need to leave. He was just being too aggressive. I was scared and had the baby to think of. I left with nothing at all. I literally fled the house because I was so scared. One day James turned up at my new house out of the blue. To this day, I have no idea how he found me. He said he was really sorry and wanted to be a dad to his baby. He won me round and we restarted the relationship. He was coming over to visit me a couple of times a week. Then, when I was around seven months pregnant, he turned up one Sunday lunchtime. I was getting ready for work and hadn't been expecting him. We had an innocuous conversation about adoption and I said everyone should be able to adopt. Gay couples, mixed race couples. He hated gay and black people and he was insisting I was wrong and got angrier and angrier about it. I went upstairs and sat on the end of the bath while I washed my face. He just walked in and started punching me in the face over and over again about 20 times. I slipped off the end of the bath and fell onto the floor. He had a pair of work boots on and he stamped straight on my stomach. I was in absolute shock. People say things go in slow motion when something like that happens to you and it did. My nose was bleeding and he just walked out and left. A friend of Tracy's took us straight to a local hospital, where appalled nursing staff discovered the boot print on his stomach. Tracy recalled, They tried to listen to the baby's heartbeat, but couldn't find anything initially. They told me to prepare myself for bad news, but then they got a heartbeat, and told me to monitor the movements for the next ten days. It was the longest 10 days of my life. I couldn't even begin to imagine something like that. It must be frightening beyond description, mustn't it? And what kind of parasite can do that to a heavily pregnant woman? Tracy did tell police about this assault and Dunleavy was arrested. 
but ultimately she refused to press charges against him as she was too terrified of facing him in court. Tracy Underlevy's daughter Rosie was born in 1992 and Tracy and her daughter moved into a flat in the town of Warwick where they heard nothing from Dunleavy for five years. And then one day, he arrived at their house after tracking them down using the electoral roll. Tracy said, There was a knock on the door and when I answered it, James was stood there. I was frozen scared. He said, I'm really sorry, please let me see her. He claimed Rosie was everything to him, so I gave him another chance and he would see her two or three times a week. They maintained a harmonious relationship for the next 18 months and in 1999, Tracy, Rosie and Tracy's daughter from a previous relationship, Isabel, even went on holiday to Ireland with Dunleavy. However, Dunleavy began making racist remarks in front of his daughter so Tracy banned him from seeing her and he vanished from their lives once again, she said. It was St. Patrick's Day and we went to see the parade. We ended up having a row and I took the girls home after just four days. I never met his mother because she'd split from his dad by that point. I met his dad though and he was an absolute star. I thought he'd finally got the message and we'd seen the back of him. But six years later he turned up at their house once again in 2005, just days after his younger brother Terry had been shot dead in Dublin. Dunleavy once again apologised and Tracy once again allowed him to see their daughter, who was by that time 13. Tracy continued, He said losing his brother had completely floored him. He said he was changed and was so sorry for everything he'd done. For the first time, I really saw proper sincerity from him, so I agreed he could see her. Dunleavy had indeed changed, but had soon become even more menacing. Tracy recalled, After a couple of meetings, I could tell something was odd. From the moment Terry died, something changed. I remember thinking, something's changed, something inside him. I felt really scared of him. He was ranting about all sorts. There was something dark going on with him. He went from being sarcastic to being threatening. We had a blazing row about something, and I said he was never welcome in the house again. I said if he ever turned up again, I would call the police. That's when it really kicked off. He came round, stood at the front gate and made a gesture that he was going to behead me or slit my throat. I was standing in the front window and he just looked at me and said, I'm going to fucking kill you and tried to kick the front door in. We barricaded ourselves in the living room and the police kept us on the phone. Tracy went to court and obtained non-molestation and restraining orders against Dunleavy, who pretty much ignored these and continued to hound her. She explained, I had no choice but to keep him away from us. I knew he was either going to kill us or someone else. I knew seven years ago that he was going to do something really bad. He didn't have the intention to come here and kill us, but I knew if I let him into the house and he got aggressive, it would turn into major violence. He said, don't let Rosie go to school because you'll never see her again. He was going to kidnap her and take her to Ireland. Then about every six months, a letter would turn up. 
An extract from one such letter was published in the press, and I'll recount it here. Again, not sensationalising or anything, but this is the type of rambling, frightening, venomous filth Tracy was getting through the post. It also does contain a racial slur, for which I do apologise, but I am leaving it in. I want you to know the type of person we're talking about. The extract from the letter reads as follows. Wanting the bollocks or attention of your so-called miscarriages, the nigger you went with in 91 used and physically abused you, and you loved it. You miscarried for him on a frequent basis. I hope the next I hear of you is if when you're dead and hopefully by your own hand, you fucking degenerate prostitute. The STD you contracted has spoiled your brain. Does the truth hurt, Doris? I don't think so, because you are dead inside. You are the walking dead. If you peel away your skin, you have scales and yellow eyes underneath. My mother told me about you years ago. I should have listened, yet she never laid eyes on you. It's funny how she knew you were of the serpent seed like. Serpent, 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 serpent. Now imagine the horror of receiving something as venomous as rambling and disturbing such as that. Tracy went on about the letters. They got more and more threatening, but the last ever letter he sent was the worst. There were swastikas plastered all over it, and he said in it that he hoped I would get raped by 40 Asians. He was arrested on a couple of occasions over these letters, but never went to court because I was too scared to give evidence. Eventually he moved away, either to Ireland or Scotland. It was September 2008, and I never saw him again after that. Tracy did, however, receive a postcard from Dunleavy in March 2013, just weeks before he murdered his mother. She went on, It was an Edinburgh postcard, and on the back was his handwriting. All it said was Deluxe, his address, and his phone number. I was shaking as I was holding it. I was terrified. I thought he was going to come back into our lives. I had to quit work and couldn't let the girls out of my sight. I used to sleep fully clothed with my shoes on, just in case he turned up. I called the cops and told them that I was scared he was going to do something really bad. The weeks went on and there was no sign of him. Then I got a call at 8am on July the 22nd from the police in Scotland, saying he'd murdered his mother. In a way, I wasn't shocked because I knew he was going to do something really bad. But the biggest shock was the fact that he'd killed his mum. He used to say in the letters how much he loved his mum, he adored his mum. I'd kept everything from my daughter up until the day I got that phone call. And then I knew she had to know. I remember going into a room and saying, your dad's done something really bad. To tell her that her nan had died and that her dad had done it broke my heart. During Dunleavy's murder trial, Tracy was contacted by Warwickshire Police who offered to move her to safety in another part of the UK if he was found not guilty and released. She added, If he'd been found not guilty, I'd have taken them up on the offer because he would have killed us all. When I got the phone call to say he'd been found guilty, it felt like a massive lottery win. The elation was immense. It was like having a massive weight lifted off my shoulders. 
The baggage that I've carried around with me for more than 22 years are suddenly gone. I lived it every single day. For the first part of our time together, I could handle him. But after his brother died, it became hell on earth. My life has been on hold for the past six years. I lived in constant fear. I should be married now, living in my own house. But I've got nothing. I've been destroyed. He's absolutely ruined me. I wish I'd never met him. The only good thing to come from it was Rosie. He's completely ruined my life. Every time I hear the garden gate, I get palpitations. But he can't hurt me anymore because he's locked up. From an account like that, where he clearly, clearly needs to be, isn't it? So, a truly disturbing tale to start the series off with there, right? And nine years for cutting his mum open to see if she was a lizard or not. I mean, for fuck's sake, I couldn't get my head around such a decision at all. Nine years just seems, well, it's piss take really, isn't it? When you think that he was then released two-thirds through this sentence to a hostel facility, only to be then returned to the state hospital just a short time later because he was clearly deemed as being psychotic and unsafe to be out on the streets. To me, it seems ludicrous that he even was putting a danger such as Dunleavy back on the streets. Who the hell decides that? And someone who'd long been dangerous, I mean, we've just heard the absolute fear that Dunleavy's ex-partner went through at his hands, and they're haunting words from Tracy or what them, aren't they? Imagine being beaten to the point where you live in abject fear for 10 days of losing your baby, or living in constant fear of hate-filled, disgusting, venomous letters and postcards coming through the door, containing such horror as wishing that you're gang-raped, or just rambling bizarre shit about people being lizards and serpents, serpents, serpents. It's both frightening and horrendous, and my heart really went out to her for it. I also felt throughout the episode for tragic Phyllis. I mean, someone who'd already suffered a great deal of loss and ill health in life, but to lose your life in such a horrific, undignified way at the hands of your own child, that's just tragedy indeed. And for the remaining members of Dunleavy's family, who although by all accounts, they weren't exactly the Wests, I know, but they certainly weren't the Waltons either. Not a close-knit family, but to suffer the tragedy and loss that they have, I mean, how can your heart not go out to them? A father, a brother and sister, who had to add a mother, and effectively another brother, to those that they've already lost, all because of Dunleavy's own disturbed and evil actions. There is a lot of stuff unanswered here though, isn't there? I mean, we could be here all day discussing it. But overall, you have to wonder why, don't you? Was Dunleavy, like a racist thug capable of extreme violence, who I think was clearly mentally ill and had likely been for a while? I mean, Tracy's account and the extract from the letter sent to her that we heard isn't exactly the script of someone who's A1 in the head, is it? And how many Nazis convert to Islam? You know, I mean, weird, that what? Was he always building up to kill someone, long being psychopathic, and he just snapped and killed at that time, with his own mother being the unfortunate person in the firing line? Or did his conversion to Islam accelerate this? Which I personally thought quite bizarre, given his character. But Mr. Razak was right. 
this was a misinterpretation of the Quran and an honour killing if you like. Was his mother scared of him, leading to her trying to find a room and reluctant to head back to his flat the following day? And the episode she claimed he had had. Stemming from this, did he go and dig his mother's grave beforehand and police delivered her back to his flat unwittingly to her death? Another thing that hasn't changed this series, as you probably notice, is I still think out loud as ever. See what I mean though? We could be here all day picking the tail to bits. It's unlikely though that any of these answers will ever be known. Perhaps Dunleavy will never reveal. Perhaps he himself doesn't even really know. But the way I see it, if he really did believe that his mother was a serpent to the point where he killed and dismembered her to see, as he claimed, then he is an extremely dangerous individual indeed. And it should be many, many years, if ever, before he is safe to even be out of the state hospital let alone anywhere near to being back on the streets. So what do you guys think then about the tale of James or Seamus Dunleavy, whatever you want to call him? What are your thoughts about his actions, his reasons for doing so, and his sentence? Could someone such as him ever be safe to be released, do you think? And in the next episode, because it's where we've ended the opening case of the series, and I'm pretty sure that throughout you might have known where this is building up to, we should be back at Carstairs meeting some of its other past patients, like I promised we would do a couple of series ago when we did the Carstairs trilogy. It goes without saying that it's a tale that I hope you can join me for. I also hope that you found the series opener an interesting and informative tale. I know it's been a bit full on and a disturbing one, with a lot of stuff unanswered through it too, but a tale very worth telling, I thought. There is the customary episode thread up now in the show's Facebook group, where should you wish to, you can give your opinions, but you can also reach me through any of the show's social media channels to do so as well, should you want to. Head over to the show's Instagram page as well to see images of persons relating to the opener. There'll be a picture of Dunleavy there. There's a picture of the reconstructed picture of the woman's face against a picture of Phyllis. All sorts of stuff, many images relating to the opener. It's wrap-up time here now then, and I'm off cracking on with our return to Carstairs. So all that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. It's fabulous as ever to be back with you guys. Thank you so much for joining me today, and goodbye for now.